So welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and web design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we're going to have Adam Bradley on as our guest to talk about using no-code and low-code tools on top of your different frameworks. Uh, and there's actually several different products that we'll get to touch on, I think, which will be a lot of fun. Web development and design, who would have guessed what we can do on both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. What's up, everyone? My name is James Quick, and I am a full-time technical content creator. And today we are joined by two amazing sponsors in Hashnode and Daily.dev. Hashnode is an amazing place for developers to start a blog, and Daily.dev is the perfect place to find relevant articles in tech that you're interested in. More about them later on in the show. Adam, welcome to the channel. Video and audio, this will be audio after the fact on the podcast. But do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, Adam Bradley, uh, Director of Technology at Builder.io. I previously was at Ionix. I helped create Ionic, created Stencil.js, and today I'm working on Quick and Party Town are my latest projects. Which are great names just to start with. Like one, obviously <laughs> I appreciate Quick, and it's Q-U-I-K, is that right? Q-W-I-K. Or Q-W-K. Yes. Cute, huh? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was actually named Cute, Q O O T, and we, mm. we didn't like that. So it turned into <laughs> Quick. I like Quick a lot better. You reserve the right to make those changes. Is that what there's like a convenience store type thing in Europe that's really popular? Like, I think it's Q W I K. I think it's the same. Is there? Do some research behind the scenes. Quick. Well, I'm in the Midwest um, and we're filled with Quick Trips, K W I K. So maybe that's what it is. I can't. Okay. I'll look that up later. But. Anyway, I appreciate the name. And then Party Town, I don't know how it could be more <laughs> exciting than that. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on your background? Like you mentioned being co-creator at Ionic and Stencil. I'd actually love like a brief intro to what Stencil is because I'm not familiar. I've heard of it, but I don't actually know what it is. But anyway, just like more about your background. Like, sure. Where did you get started kind of creating? Where did that excitement come from? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough fortunate enough to meet Max and Ben here in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and they were creating at the time a drag and drop interface builder for jQuery mobile. And over time, you know, I started working with them and over time we created uh, Ionic, the three of us. And that was built on top of AngularJS. And it was basically trying to provide a mobile UI library to Angular developers. And so that really took off fairly quickly in like 2013, 2014 era. So expanded, blew up, had a lot of fun building that. But then as, you know, Angular 2 came out, React came out, Vue and all these things came out, you know, the challenge that we had with Ionic is that we needed to work in all these different frameworks. And so we're, that's really where Stencil came from. And so if you were to use Ionic today, the guts of it, the base of it is actually built on top of Stencil. And what Stencil allows us to do is to have the Ionic run on these different frameworks. So right now there's Ionic React, Vue, and Angular which are all built on the different versions of those frameworks. And Stencil kind of allows the, the bridge between that. So really the core Ionic developers only have to worry about writing it one way. And Stencil kind of makes sure it runs in the different frameworks. Cool. Okay. I didn't realize that tie-in. One of our favorite frameworks is Svelte. Has there been any talk of supporting Svelte in the future? There's been plenty of talk of that. I think every <laughs> framework someone brings up, like how come it doesn't work in this? Really, the, I think the biggest challenge with that project, just making Ionic work in one framework is a lot of work. Making it work in three is a lot of work. I think the biggest challenge is usually the router. It's one thing to make like, you know, a button that colored blue and has a certain CSS in a framework work everywhere is somewhat simple, but to make the routing and the transitions, the animations all work in each of the different frameworks 
that's where it gets to be a large maintenance overhead for a small team. And so that's mm-hmm. why we're kind of sticking with the big three or they are. So I'm no <laughs> longer with Ionic. They're still doing an awesome job and still follow along. So good friends with everyone there. So, but like watching from the sidelines. Cool. Yeah. I got to meet Mike at KCDC yeah. last year. So it's been eight or nine months or so. So I got to meet him for the first time. And then Kim Maida, who's at Ionic now, okay. she was my manager at Auth Zero for a month and then she just happened to move on. I wish I had had more time nice. to work with her. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. They're awesome. I've been working with Mike for, I don't know, eight years <laughs> and I've known him. So yeah, he's great. He's done such a good job, I think, of representing Ionic too. Like I don't know Ionic that well at all, but I definitely, I know his name from like meeting him, but also just knew his name from seeing him around the Ionic brand with different content all the time. So I think he's doing a good job for what it's worth. (laughs) Yeah. And I think in the earliest days, I think the forum really helped out quite a bit with Ionic, you know, and that's really attributed to Mike, how much he, you know, responded to people and helped grow Ionic. So, yeah. So thinking about like with Ionic early on, was that something that had been a goal of yours? Was it a goal of yours to actually build a product, to actually build tools that other developers could use? Was that something that you had already done or wanted to do? Or how did you approach that? Yeah, no, I've always enjoyed kind of building tools to make things simpler because I think it's hard to make things simple. And so like with Ionic, it really kind of came from a need of like, you know, we were building this jQuery mobile interface, you know, drag and drop interface builder. But jQuery mobile really just wasn't up to the task to make things work just like an actual mobile app. And so eventually, you know, with all the customers saying like, this isn't working how a mobile app works, that's where kind of Ionic was born. It was just like, all right, let's take a month here. Let's pause this development. Let's see if we can build something that works well in mobile. And, you know, here we are. It's working really well now. And especially now that we're using Capacitor, which is another project of Ionics, it's really doing really well now. That's awesome. Amy and I have talked about this a little bit. There's a phrase that I'm going to use more in content that I create, and it's, Basically, this idea of like merging the two seemingly very separate roles in software engineer or developer and like DevOps engineer. And the merging of those two things is developer experience. Like all the tools that we have that are coming out, that are being created, that are being updated are intended to make it easier, quicker, faster, safer, all those things for developers to just build the thing that they actually want to build. Yeah, and it's such a drastic difference from (laughs) 10 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> the tools that we have now and you know we can easily gripe about how it's so hard and complicated but like when you look back to how <laughs> it used to be and the things you had to figure out on your own whereas now the tooling has gotten so much better and like Veet is the one that comes to mind of just like the experience of, of rebuilding and you know just like any framework can work with Veet. i think that's that's kind of the most recent one that i've taken to well you said jquery mobile and i kind of yeah. chuckled in my head because i remember trying to write some awesome noodle code, (laughs) the Getty code in jQuery and trying to get all that stuff to work. And I would also travel with like five O'Reilly books in my backpack because you had to pull out those. (laughs) You had to pull those out for all your reference material. It wasn't like you could just Google it. No, I know how that goes because we were trying to make it do all sorts of backflips to try to make the framework do what we wanted it to do. And it was quite the challenge especially on those low-end devices back in 2012. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was actually jQuery Mobile was my very first intro, mostly very first intro to almost anything web-related. I'd never done anything web, and a friend of mine like mentioned this idea of responsive design, and I didn't know what that was, and he was like, you should check out jQuery Mobile. Again, being completely brand new to the entire space. And so I built like 
tiny demo or two and that was really kind of the first thing i did yeah and then i ended up taking i've talked about this a lot too the web developer bootcamp course on udemy by colt seal and that was like my gateway drug into web development and fell in love with everything about it and i've been like involved in creating content consuming content doing demos all the things since then i just couldn't get enough so there you go as a start with jquery mobile Mm -hmm. that's cool that's right yeah so what are you doing now? And then we'll kind of expand on those conversations. Sure. So talked a little bit about the past with Ionic, still friends with everybody, not directly involved, but what do you do on a day-to-day basis now? So now I'm working for Builder.io and a large part of my day is working on Quick, which is a framework that we've been working on kind of to solve some of the, it's kind of a new spin, a new idea of how to make frameworks fast. And I can get into that a little bit later, but then the other stuff, the other part that I'm working on is Party Town. I mean, that's the other half of the uh, how to make web pages fast that is kind of solving the problem. Yeah, this is your opportunity to dive deeper into that. But <laughs> I'll read a tagline from the docs on Quick. And it says that yeah. Quick is a new kind of web framework that can deliver instant loading web applications at any size or complexity, which is a bold statement. And by the way, like performance now, talking about how much better we have it than in the past with web development. There's so many tools now that are built around so many different methodologies of performance and how to improve your website in a bunch of different ways. That was obviously a big topic. I've got the Remix hoodie on. We talked about me being at Remix Conf the last couple of days. That's obviously a big topic that they are tackling. So yeah, you want to dive a little bit deeper into kind of the technical performance implications of... Yeah, uh, for sure. And one big challenge that we have in saying things like that is pretty much every (laughs) homepage says that it's the smallest, fastest, quickest. (laughs) You know, so it's hard to be different in that aspect. But uh, at least it's um, literally in your name. That's a big advantage (laughs) that you have. (laughs) We got you. (laughs) Right. So the biggest difference is that quick, it doesn't really need all of the JavaScript for the hydration process. Really, there actually isn't a hydration process. And what I mean by that is like, think of like Next.js or Gatsby, Remix, any one of them. When you server-side render the HTML, it responds back to your browser. The browser has this HTML, loads it really fast. But then for the application to pick back up, to basically like become an application, be able to have the buttons click and things work, it needs to go through this hydration process of basically assigning all these DOM nodes correctly and re-rendering the entire application to pick it back up of where it left off. And so it's kind of like... Uh, replayable at that point. What's different about Quick is that none of that really needs to happen. It's able to, we're calling it resumability because it kind of, the server creates the HTML, it curates the state inside of the HTML, and it kind of pauses it at that moment. And then when you as a user come to it and you view this page, you don't need any JavaScript to kind of pick up where the server left off. And so what's just there is just the HTML and CSS. So that's going to load as fast as you know HTML and CSS can load. And then as you use things are the ones that kind of get loaded at that time. And so there's all sorts of other, you know, optimizations that we do, but that's kind of the high level take on it is that we're able to granularly load only what you're using. That said, the very next thing is like, well, what about the latency? What about, you know, loading? What about all the bundles? You're going to have millions of files. And so all of that's also taken care of, but it's easier to say like, it only uses what you're going to use as you use them. And so that said, we do all sorts of prefetching. So we already know how things are used together during the compilation process. And so we already are able to put the bundles together of like, if you use this, you're going to use this. So let's put them into the same bundle. And we try to keep bundles around 30 kilobytes. And then we're also able to prefetch everything in the order of like how you're probably going to use them. And that can actually come from real user metrics. So it's something we're still working on right now. Hmm. But what I mean by real user metric is, let's imagine Amazon's homepage uses Quick and all their users go to it and they click a certain button, they click this button. 
we can kind of track like these are all the different components that the real users are actually using. And so with that, we can then rebuild the bundles to say like, these are actually the ones that should be all together because it turns out they're probably going to use it. And then also we can prefetch those way ahead of time so that before they even use it, it's already sitting in the browser ready to go. And so there's many, many little optimizations like that. And I think the biggest difference is kind of that with a traditional framework, there's always one entry point. So you start at like main.js and then that imports this, that imports this, and kind of you build this graph. And then, so now that you have this huge applications kind of all bundled together, the next thing is like, okay, how do we like lazy load the parts? How do we pick it apart? How do we load it faster? How do we decide not to re-render this? How do we decide to, you know, so it's kind of like the opposite effect. It's like we built this big chunk that's welded together. Now, like, how do we make it fast? It's the second step. Whereas quick is kind of the opposite direction where it's like we have many different entry points that it can be extremely granular of like, these are the, you know, many different files can put picked apart. And then the optimization process is done by the compiler of just like, actually, let's put these together because we know they're going to be used together. And so it makes it a lot, lot easier to kind of go in that opposite direction of how do we optimize. So I don't know if this will be too much secret sauce question, but before getting into the learning of where users click and what they usually go from and to, what do you gauge to decide what pieces of JavaScript are bundled together? Is it like there are these couple of different components that are on a page. So we're going to create kind of tie those different components together and include them in a bundle that makes up that page or like what kind of logic sure. goes into that? What's well, actually pretty cool and something I haven't hit on yet is that there's a majority of the time that you don't need to re-render at all a component. So especially like a Next.js app, we've got the header and footer, left menu, all these different things. We don't need to re-render those fairly, usually never, if it's already been SSR'd. And so that's a big part of what Quick does is that it already realizes just through what is possible on the page. And when I think of like an on-click handler, really that's the only thing that can change the page. And so if you have no events, no on-click handlers, no nothing on the page, then it's not possible to re-render. So then there's no need to download that bundle. And so there's a good chance that you're never downloading any render code because it's, it's basically already there. It doesn't need to re-render. And if you have on-click handler, that's the stuff that would get requested. And if that is able to change a render function, then that would get, would get included. So there's many, many low-level optimizations like that where... It's kind of cool that majority of the code doesn't need to render because especially if you think about the tree of like something like React or think about a component as React, you've got the, the JSX inside of the component and then the JSX has an on-click handler, okay? And so you need to render to then understand that this element has to have an on-click handler. But if you think about it, that really isn't necessary. It really isn't like... Why do I need to render the page? Why do I need to paint everything just to know to put the event listener on it? And so that's another big part of what Quick does is that like, it's kind of two different thoughts. We're able to put event listeners on correct events, but that doesn't mean we need to re-render the whole tree. And of course, React can do, you know, use memo and things like that to kind of optimize it. But kind of as the old adage goes, like the fastest database call is the one you never make. Right. So it's kind of the same thing with rendering. It's like, well, we can argue about which render is the fastest, but like we just don't have to render at all because it turns out we know that it's not possible to re-render that thing. So it's a different mental model for sure. It's something that it's been highly experimental, but it's been a lot of fun to kind of explore kind of some new ideas in that area. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about daily.dev. First, I think we all recognize how hard it is to stay up to date with the latest and greatest within the tech community. But there are resources like daily.dev that provide a community-based feed of the best developer news, helping you stay current. 
Daily.dev aggregates hundreds of sources every few minutes and creates a personalized feed just for you according to your interests. So whether that's the web dev, data science, or Elixir, anything you might be interested in, it has content for you. There is a web version of the product if you want to see exactly what the feed looks like. Otherwise, just go over to daily.dev and there's a link directly on the homepage to install their extension within your browser. From there, anytime you want to load a new tab, you'll see the news feed. James and I both have it installed and use it to stay current ourselves and so should you. So go check it out at daily.dev. Special thanks to daily.dev for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Can you even delay the loading of that script? Because for say like your on click, you'd have to wait for the page to show for a user to actually be able to click on something. Yeah. So the very first response would be the completed HTML and CSS. So mm -hmm. the idea being that it's going to render as fast as possible. And then at the bottom of that HTML is going to already have the prefetch of that button that we know you're going to be downloading anyway. So it's really similar to what basically all frameworks do, right? They're going to have mm -hmm. you know, their JavaScript at the bottom of the script. And it's going to start loading it right away. The difference is that while we're doing prefetching for just the one thing that's possible, the other frameworks are actually executing, actually parsing and doing the hydration process just to pick up to where it left off at. I and so okay. really, if you look at the performance charts of any framework, you see that huge spike at the very beginning of it. And that's mm -hmm. the hydration process, just trying to keep up to be usable at that point. Whereas with quick, we can kind of skip that entire process. Very cool. And you were talking about the prefetch capabilities earlier. I'm thinking just like examples and other frameworks. Like oftentimes you can have like a link component with a prefetch annotation and it's saying like, well, actually, I guess it's based on hover. So if someone hovers on the link, then it's going to go ahead and start to fetch the information for that next page. Is that right? And then... Yeah. Yeah. We'll already prefetching in the order that we either know that you're going to be using or again, like we don't get any of the render code because we know it's not possible to re-render this left menu or something like that. But we do know that there's an add to cart button and we do know that the add to cart button has a render function. And so they would be in the same bundle. They'd be the first thing to be prefetched. That's how that would work. Yeah, that's great. And I think what I was trying to not so eloquently get to is there's a decision in frameworks that you can make to do a little bit of prefetching. And what you're saying is there's already kind of more intelligence built in to do that in a smart way. Right. Yeah. And it, it's able to, again, because we have everything so picked apart, it then makes it easier to put things back together in the optimal way. Mm -hmm. We call what they are symbols of like, so each event listener has a symbol and we know how they're used and how they're used together. And then that makes it easy kind of to bundle them all back together and prefetch in a certain order. Like the on clicks are the first one to get prefetched, you know, and then a certain watch code and render code would be farther down the list. But what's cool is it's all configurable. And that we have like an auto or smart mode that we are playing with to try to make it faster. And so like our doc site is built on it. And then we're really just using the doc site to experiment the different types. But again, it's highly experimental, but a lot of fun that we've been having trying to come up with this faster, better way. And so far, so good. So with the breaking down those, I don't know if bundles is the right word because it's kind of before bundle, but breaking the things down into these virtual bundles or whatever, or just understanding where to group them and how to group them. Does Quick do the build process itself? Does it use a tool like Webpack or Vite or anything like that to actually do the bundle? Yeah, so under the hood, we've got what we call an optimizer. And, I, and we call it optimizer because it's actually not required, but it certainly makes your bundles a lot better and everything. So the optimizer is what takes your source code, so which is really just a React component. And if you look at the source of what our components look like, what a React component is, they're largely the same thing. 
Well, we take that code and we're then able to split it apart into the different functions, you know, kind of a top level function. And then from there, we're able to bundle them all back together. But all of that is internal. It's not something that developers need to use. Really, they're just using Vite. But it could be Rollup, could be Webpack. I made sure we put a lot of effort into making not yet another uh, tool <laughs> someone needs to learn or another yep. CLI that they need to run, you know, figure out all the flags for. It really is just a Vite plugin. So you just import quick, add it as a plugin, and then that all sets everything up. Yeah. And we have no CLI and that's largely on purpose. I don't want another CLI. <laughs> I love the empathy for developers and the, like, it's a good thing, right? Like as modern web development has evolved, the options get better. And because they compete with each other and push each other, there's more and more options that are also better and better. But that also then means that it's like intimidating to get started in web development because you can hear right. a ton of different things. Like after you get beyond just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, now where do you go? Which framework? And you go down the React rabbit hole where there's Next.js, there's Remix, there's tools like Quick. There's all these things. So it's a great problem to have, but it is an intimidating problem Extremely. for a lot of people if you don't know. know where to prioritize your time and what things are going to be worth looking into. I've thought a lot about that too. Just it's like we've said constantly, there's not a better time to get into web like with the static site stuff, you can host things for free. The tooling is awesome. You can do so many great things. But I also just have a lot of empathy for beginners. Like, where do you start? Now, a lot of ways, since I started so long ago, I feel like I've kind of grown up with stuff. So I've been able to tack on skills as they've evolved. But for a new person, it's overwhelming when you look at, oh, man, I've got to learn all of this stuff just to do this tiny task. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that a lot of it is like, well, you just npm install it. Like, what the heck is npm install? Like, oh, well, it, it's yeah. the package manager for Node. Like, what are you talking about for Node? You know, and so there's just so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Or like, I, for a while, was trying to figure out Rails and eventually <laughs> just gave up on it, but was watching a course and I was like, just install this gem. And I'm like, I've come to accept <laughs> packages and things <laughs> like that with JavaScript. But for me, that was a new idea and a new concept at the time with Rails. It was like, well, what is the gym doing? <laughs> what, yeah. what library am I working with? I still want to know how everything's working under the hood. Yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with Dino. Ooh, yeah. Too. And so we've been getting quick to work with Dino, which is a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of like, again, I'm so familiar with Node.js and, and NPM. It's like, you really got to rethink. It's like, okay, this is what it feels like you know, to try to learn to something. To relearn new. again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you have this issue now, but it's like a lot of the things that I want to learn or more cutting edge stuff. And so sometimes it's harder to find resources around that yeah. and even accurate resources to know, okay, is this really the best practice? And you have to be willing to dig a little bit deeper and read source code and all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm extremely guilty of that for sure with Quick because I even think our docs are still out of date of like kind of the latest and greatest of what we've put out for how the component works and why it works the way it is. But yeah, there's a lot of work in docs too, but I know. Yes. A lot of work in docs. I think that's one of the most underrated things that, you know, yeah. a framework can do to make it better is just educating people. Yeah. I was just going to say, we were talking about Remix earlier. I think like they're killing it with their docs. I think they do mm -hmm. such a good job describing it and works well. I was admiring their docs the other day. Shout out to the team at Remix. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to take care of everything. Spoiler alert. Kent's going to come on the podcast nice. in July. So, nice. Yeah. Is that when I was? Cool. Yeah, excited mm -hmm. to get to talk to him. I got to meet him in person. I mean, he was so nice. Like, I think he was trying to be appreciative of sponsors, but he came up to our booth 
and we hadn't yet seen each other. And he was like, dude, can I give you a hug? Like, thank you so much Aww. for all of your support. And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> cool. And they had the stickers for like basically what your comfort level was of interacting with mm. people. So they had like fist bump, nice. handshake, oh, et cetera. And I was like, Kent, like we should have a hug one. Like I want people to know that I'm cool with it. And he was like, yeah, we thought about that. But the only weird thing with that is, is like if you say you're comfortable with hugs, like you may or may not be comfortable with everybody giving you a hug, like people yeah. that you're excited to meet, like absolutely. But like a random stranger just comes up and hugs you, may get a little weird. So I think just walking they, down the um, hallway, I know, yeah, being attacked by everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. But there were lots of good huggy moments for me. Like again, so many people that I have followed that I look up to that I was just so excited to meet, and it was very yeah. exciting. So cool. There's a comment in the chat from AJC, another person that I got to meet in person. And I, I'm going to try it again. Anthony Campolo. And then it's either Joshua or Joseph. But I think it's Joseph. I think I've got it this time. Joseph. I can't keep track of his whole name, I but know. I can at yeah. least remember Joseph. That's like my job. <laughs> Just remember Joseph. That's why Amy and I make a good team. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> So he was saying, so you don't try to abstract away Vite, you try to expose Vite. And he mentioned that some other frameworks like Astro build a lot of extra conventions on top of kind of what they use under the hood. So maybe you can answer that. And then in addition to that, I don't know how well you know Astro, but I don't know much, but I know they have a big focus on like shipping no JavaScript or as little JavaScript as possible, which I assume is kind of a similar vibe here. Do you have any like comparison thoughts? on Quick and Astro. Yeah, actually the Party Town site is built with Astro and we've chatted with the Astro team quite a bit. They're a great group of developers. They're a lot of fun to work with. Really active Discord channel. So yeah, I think Astro is great for sure. And yeah, I've used their tool again. The Party Town site was built in it. I think what's different with Quick's Vite plugin is that we're really just using all of Vite. So really within the plugin, we have our optimizer, which does all the, I guess, magic of wiring things up and being able to know how to put bundles together. But on the surface level of how someone would use it, it really is just a Vite plugin. And so we also wanted, so like Netlify has their Vite plugin of how that works. And so we wanted to make sure that that doesn't break anything. Like we do too much magic under the hood that this certain flag doesn't work anymore because we changed it automatically. So yeah, again, a lot of effort went into making sure that it's just using the Vite plugin and then you can use Quick if that helps answer the question at all. And then I guess the differences between Astro is that they have their islands for sure. And it is much better than I think a lot of the traditional tooling out there. I think one difference though, is like, we still don't have to do the hydration process, like when you use something. And so we're still able to have a large application that, you know, majority of the code doesn't mean you downloaded and the code that you are going to use in that time would already be used. And so like, we don't have to re-render when it's time to figure out where the listeners are. We don't have to, you know, a lot of the traditional framework stuff, but that said, Astro is a huge step forward, huge leap forward of how frameworks should work. It's always humbling for me to feel as in tune with modern web development tools and frameworks as I feel. Like I get to spend a lot more time than the average person experimenting with new technologies, having guests on to talk about their products and technologies. So I feel like I'm in touch with a lot of stuff. So it's really humbling. And this happens a lot where I go down these rabbit holes or hear other people talk about details that like, I just, I don't have that depth of knowledge. Remix is one of them. I read the Next.js versus Remix blog post and it like really dive deep into some of the things that are just built into web platforms and browsers from caching and optimizations that they take advantage of. And so there's so many opportunities, regardless of me feeling like I'm aware of what's out there. Like once you get down into those finer details, there's just always a ton of learning opportunity for me. Yeah. And, th and that's also like 
a lot of effort goes into using the platform and using a lot of, you know, the latest and greatest of what Chrome and Safari provide. And so that's one benefit, I think, for sure, is with frameworks is that a lot of that stuff you don't have to, mm-hmm. you know, keep up on. And I know with Ionic, we did quite a bit of work with the CSS to make sure that those pages are rendering fast and those page transitions are happening pretty smooth. And that if you try to write that page transition yourself, you're going to run into the issues that everyone ran into of, you know, like stuff gets skippy because something's rendering and and so anyways, it's a big plug for, you know, frameworks do actually make your life a lot easier when it comes down to the gotchas that come up a lot. I feel like I can echo all of that. I can build stuff on platforms, but when you start getting into that nitty gritty, I'm like, that's a whole new level of thinking and programming. Like even what you're talking yeah. about with the bundle size, like I don't think about render on that level of this is what an on-click does. This is when it should load. Mm-hmm. Like I just accept the magic and (laughs) appreciate it and reap the benefits of it. Yeah. And there's usually, I mean, on Twitter, Twitter's Twitter, and there's all sorts of arguments (laughs) of like, you don't need to learn this, or you shouldn't understand everything to make your life work, you know? And I like to compare it to like starting a car, right? Like most people Mm. turn the key and then they drive somewhere. Like you don't need to understand how fuel injection works to make sure that you can get to your next location. And I think that's very similar. I mean, like, I don't understand how assembly languages work, you know, binary and at the lowest level of computer, I just use the browser, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. that's a good thing that I'm not rewriting, you know, how browsers work. And so I think that's the same thing for frameworks. It really does like help speed up development. That's a great analogy too of a car because it's, Mm -hmm. I don't know how that works either. (laughs) (laughs) And that's fine, right? That's absolutely fine, you know? And, And then also, you know, Twitter's Twitter and people will think that everyone has the same exact use case as themselves. Mm-hmm. And so like, right, right. how dare you use a framework? You should just use HTML. It's like, well, they're probably doing something different than what you're doing. So yeah. I think that's lost on a lot of people. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about Hashnode. So Hashnode makes it easy to start a blog in seconds on your own custom domain for free. It's fully optimized for developers and supports writing in Markdown, rich embeds, publishing from a GitHub repository, syntax highlighting and edge caching with Next.js blogs deployed on Vercel. On top of this, your article gets instant readership from the growing community. James and I have talked before on the podcast about how valuable creating content is and how developing an online presence really does give you respect and credibility in the tech space. And really there's no better way to do that than through Hashnode. So be sure to go to hashnode.com and join the community. Special thanks to Hashnode for being a compressed FM sponsor. Well, I think we have to be really comfortable with the answer. It depends to be the answer yeah. for everything because there's trade-offs with every single thing that we use. I will add like the idea of the car and I don't know anything about cars, but I find myself becoming more and more curious about everything around me, like especially in web development, but then just like I've done a lot of attempting to do woodworking and DIY projects and stuff completely brand new, just watching YouTube videos and buying random stuff from Home Depot to do projects. But I find myself being more and more interested in that. And I do think eventually, especially in web development and programming, that makes you a better and better developer. Like there's limitations of how deep you have to go and you don't have to go deep everywhere. But I think becoming curious, learning more about what's going on behind the scenes does make you better and better at what you do. And the example of this is like before I learned CSS decently, like I was very beginner CSS and I started using Bootstrap, which a lot of people did. And then something would go wrong with Bootstrap and from a CSS perspective, I didn't know how to do the right overrides, right? So I think there's always a limitation, but going down some of those rabbit holes to help kind of build out this layer of knowledge that you have 
is beneficial. And the people who do frameworks and tools like yourself, like you have to have that understanding or else you wouldn't be able to create the tools that other people get to take advantage of and not worry about those details. Yeah. And I think it's fine to, you know, go down the path of what you're interested in rather than, yeah. you know, taking a four-year degree in CSS development to find out that you like doing databases, yep. you know? And so, I mean, really I started out doing Photoshop and doing graphic design and then I started doing web pages and I started doing CSS and like kind of gone down the stuff that I find interesting. So I think that's, that's my preferred path. You know, everyone can take their own path, but like, I don't agree with someone saying like, you need to understand JavaScript completely yeah. if you want to do anything, you know, and that's, well, what if you're doing PHP development? You know, it's, mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or even that whole argument, do designers need to know code or vice versa? Yeah. yeah. I don't agree with that at all. Like if there's any argument between a developer and designer, I always take the designer side because, you know, I, I'm a huge fan. You know that, James? <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing but the greatest appreciation for you, Amy. I don't think that's ever been debated. No, I love designers. They actually make things look good for us developers. Uh, you know, and again, like I did Photoshop quite a bit back in the day, you know, and then I recognized that I don't have the designer guy. You know, so when you work with someone that really does and they make, oh, that's so much nicer. I don't know what you did, but it looks so much nicer. I, I love that. And that was a big part of Ionic, really, you know. So like Max and I did a lot of the how it works. And then we had Ben that really made it look nice. And so I think you need to have that balance. Yeah, I will. And I think that's the key there. I was joking about it, but it really is a balance. It is a mutually beneficial relationship because you can have something that looks good, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't yeah. matter. Right. Right. <laughs> Nobody's going to use it. Right. Exactly. I'm going to pivot us over just to make sure we get some time to talk about party town. Yeah. And before we do that, I know that this will be part of that conversation, but this is related to web workers and I am aware of web workers. I've never intentionally done anything with them myself. But do you want to first just give kind of an introduction to what web workers are and then what problems they solve? Sure. So traditionally, the browser has a single CPU. So everything is running on the same core and the same process. And computers usually have much more than just one. So normally 8, 16, whatever the computer is, it has more than one CPU. But our browser is using just the one of them. And that really goes for all of the UI, all the buttons, all the pictures, you know, network requests, everything is happening on the same thread, which most times, well, which is okay. <laughs> I'll just say that. That's just okay. And so what a web worker does is it allows you to communicate with another process on that computer to do a lot of the work. So you can kind of do things in parallel. And so web workers have been around for quite a while now, almost a decade that you've been able to practically use them. But the biggest challenge is that it doesn't have access to the DOM. It doesn't have access to the main thread to be able to do things to it. So like imagine like element.getAttribute, that's never going to work inside the web worker because it has no idea what you're talking about. It doesn't know what the DOM is. It doesn't know what window is, anything like that. And so while web workers are great, I'm a huge fan of them. Absolutely use them when you should. Like if you have a very CPU intensive process, you should throw that over into the web worker, let it do its thinking in parallel. And when it's done with the response, you can then put it back into the main thread. So it's great for that use case, but again, you don't have the DOM. And so it's kind of been very restricted for most practical purposes, especially something like React or Angular, right? You really can't use it that much. And so that's, should I segue into the Python yeah, yeah. bit? Yep, absolutely. And so it's always been kind of like this pipe dream to allow third-party scripts. So scripts that you don't have control of. So actually, let me back up a little bit. Like if you think of your traditional web page, you've got your own code that runs and, and uses a little bit of a CPU to make that web page load as fast as possible. And then somebody 
in the company, adds a whole bunch of analytics and marketing and A-B testing, anything and everything you can think of onto that page also. And so that really is like death by a thousand cuts type of scenario where I'm sure, you know, most developers have been in the situation where you put a lot of time into making your page fast, but then it's all these third-party scripts like Google Analytics, HubSpot, Intercom, things like that, that really drain it down. So one third-party script alone is fine, right? It might drop your Lighthouse score a little bit, but when you put them all together is when it really starts to eat away at the performance. And that's not to say like, usually the response is like, well, don't use third-party scripts. And that's just, I don't agree with that one either because like, <laughs> well, if you're a business, you're a practical business and you you know need to improve sales, improve conversion rates, you need to have that data. And so that's not a good argument. Like basically like, yeah, don't put on scripts, you don't need it, but you need that data. Like other departments in the company need that. So you need to figure out a way to get that there. And so where part of town comes in is understanding that like your code should be dedicated to the main thread. That's your thread that you can do anything you want with your app on your thread. And then the third party scripts, which is already kind of asynchronous by nature, that stuff can be thrown off into the web worker and kind of be a little bit slower, which is perfectly okay. Because especially something like Google analytics, where it tracks like button clicks and page loads, and then it posts to the Google servers of what happened. That's an asynchronous thing that actually doesn't need to take away your performance at the fastest script possible. That can take a millisecond into another thread. You know, and so that's kind of the idea behind it is that, yes, it will run a touch slower, but that's actually okay because now none of that stuff is eating away your performance of your React app or Angular app. So there's got to be this communication layer. I want to make sure I understand first just the idea of web workers. So web workers do have the ability to send messages back and forth from the web worker itself and the main thread. Is that right? Yeah, which is great. So there's the post message that you can go in between the two. And it takes, you know, a millisecond to hop between the two different threads. The challenge is that all of the third-party script code has stuff like document.cookie, document.title, you know, and it's expecting the return call immediate. It's a blocking call. Or, you know, again, mm-hmm. think of a element.get attribute. The equal isn't a callback. It isn't a async await. It's not a mm-hmm. promise. It's expecting a blocking response immediately. Yep. So when you throw that code into a web worker, it's just never going to work because if it was designed around callbacks or promises, then maybe we could get to work. But the reality is it's not like Google Analytics is 300 kilobytes of code that's all blocking. And so that's why it's just never been possible to use that. And that's where like Party Town kind of adds a huge, I'll admit, a huge trick to get this stuff to work by allowing it, allowing the web worker to become blocking to get that information, do document.cookie, get the string value from the main thread, and then respond it back to the web worker. But that allows us to throw all of the third-party scripts into the different threads so that it doesn't eat away at your scores. And so far, we've seen a huge difference between with and without Party Town. You know, a lot of our sites are now using it, not only because we built it, but because it actually makes our pages faster and our Lighthouse scores better. And so it's still an alpha. There's still lots of things that we're, like, we're ironing out, but it's actually, it's been a lot of fun watching it grow and having like, you know, a lot of people getting back to us of like, we need this working, this doesn't work. And so, so if you're out there and you're trying to make your pages faster, we'd love to get you testing part town and uh, really submitting any issues of things that you're coming across, but so far so good. This again is like one of those potential rabbit hole learning opportunities for me. Again, not having much experience with web workers, but understanding like I've worked in mobile development before, understanding working on separate threads, putting things intentionally on separate background threads and having that communication open between the separate threads when things finish. But like you said, that's more of the callback pattern that may not 
necessarily be the code that you're looking to optimize in the Google Analytics example. Yeah. And that's the other hard requirement was here is that like, I could easily say like, well, you need to make all of your code asynchronous, but that's me telling the world, you know, yeah. telling Google, like you need to rewrite all of your code that already has trillions of dollars going through it right now as we speak, you know? So it's like, that's not going to happen. I'm sure Google would love that feedback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a, a big part of it was like Partytown doesn't try to like recreate the DOM and try to, you know, keep things in sync, but rather it's just like when it receives document that title, it knows how to proxy that and say like, I don't know what you're talking about. Let's just ask the main thread what document that title is. And so we don't re-implement the DOM. We rather just mm -hmm. like always approximate the information to the main thread. The main thread knows what the answer is and responds it back to the web worker. It's so smart. It's taking me minutes as you're talking to kind of wrap my head around that. So it's just for those pieces that it doesn't have access to things on the DOM. It's going to send a message, say, hey, main thread, just whatever you can send me back, whatever this thing is that I'm looking for. And now using that information in the worker thread, I can run and do the long standing or the code that takes a long time to run all in the background. And you only have to kind of do that proxy for specific things that are not accessible inside of the background worker thread. Correct. Yeah. And so a big part of Python is I think it's about 10 kilobytes so far is that we didn't want to re-implement the entire DOM. So if you think about something like a JS DOM, right, where no JS doesn't have a document so it provides JSDOM, but that whole, if we were to bundle that into a file, I think it's like two megabytes. And so having a two megabyte script to speed up your site is pretty counterintuitive. <laughs> and so we wanted to make sure that it's as small as possible and to really not re-implement anything, but rather just always go to main to look for the real answer if you're not able to run it yourself. And, but, but really all that script that, you know, 300 kilobytes of Google Analytics is running onto a different thread in parallel to your application. This is where I stare at Amy. <laughs> what you got, Amy? I can't. This is so deep. This is one of those things where it's just like, wow, there's <laughs> a lot that went into that. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's the epitome of like the world we live in. Like people who I have know. that depth of knowledge and experience so are able good. to, again, create so tools that we just get to use. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have, probably if you're Amazon.com, probably don't run Party Town tomorrow on your homepage. But if you have a, you know, a site that you're, you know, a blog or something like that, or a e-commerce page or whatever, like we'd love to get more testing on it. So we are getting quite a few people and we're getting some larger websites that are starting to use it. And so that's been really valuable of any information of like what we need to fix yet. But the idea is that really you just change the script tag to have script, you know, type text slash Python. And then that just kind of enables it to run it onto the different threads. So I want to make sure that there wasn't like a huge webpack build process and you got to yeah. do all these different things. Like Python really, it does have integrations for React and Svelte and all that. But at the lowest level, it's really just changing the script tag to have type text slash Python, just so it doesn't execute the JavaScript. And you can use it in Drupal, WordPress. It really doesn't matter. As long as it's just HTML, you can use Python. Yeah, I feel like that's as easy as it gets. So at build time, Party Town would then like parse the actual HTML, look for script tags that specifically have the type of Party Town, and then based on that, be able to do its work. Is that right? Yep. So at runtime, so when the web page loads, normally you're going to have these script tags either in the head or at the bottom of the body. And the moment the browser sees them, it's like, oh, I've got a script to run. Let's execute it immediately. And that's like a huge drain of performance right there. And again, there's nothing you can really do about that because it's someone else's code that's running on your user's browser. Mm -hmm. And so instead, you know, when you add the script tag type 
party town that when the browser sees it, it's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just going to skip over you, right? So the main thread doesn't execute that JavaScript. And then when everything's loaded, everything's cooled down, your page is running great. That's when Python kicks in. It's like, okay, now it's time for me to work. It then finds all of those scripts that it didn't run mm-hmm. and uh, gets their content or gets their source URL and then runs it into the web worker. Okay. And I was wrong because I said build time. This is at run. So when it actually loads in the browser, yeah. after all that is loaded, then it runs the party town scripts. Now it's going to go back and see what hasn't been run and do its magic with those. Yep. And that's the other big part is like normally scripts try to do some tricks to like kind of lazily load, but either way, they're still loading pretty eagerly and fighting for resources with your application. And so hmm. party town makes sure that your page is all good to go. Everything's cooled off. And then it decides to get those scripts and run into the web worker. Cool. Just want to reiterate the coolness of the name party town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that came from when we were working on it, the discussion goes that, you know, I was talking about like, well, we want to run these third party scripts into a different location. You know, we have like these party scripts that go into a different town, different, you know, and like, oh, party town. And it kind of naturally mm-hmm. came out. So I like it. I don't know if there's a connection there. I don't know, but <laughs> we enjoyed it. And I think earlier you mentioned that it was in alpha behind the scenes secretly. You've been upgraded to beta or at least it has beta on the website. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it is beta. Sorry. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was thinking of quick. Quick is so alpha. So quick yeah. is then alpha. Cool. Yeah. And that one we're ready to go with beta here with a zero one zero, which is still a pretty low number. Yeah, that's fun. So the last one to potentially talk about is builder.io. So Party Town is actually at a subdomain of builder and then oh quick and party town are subdomains of builders. Well, one, what is builder and then what's the relationship between all of these? Yeah, so Builder is a way to basically have a visual editor inside of your existing website. And so where it's different than most kind of interface builders is like you think of something like Wix, where they control the entire domain, they control every single page, everything, how it's used. And that's great for up until so far, until certain size of the organization. Large organizations are going to have many different departments, many different servers, different web pages, different technologies, frameworks. It's all over the board. But you kind of have the same requirement. You really still want to have designers and the marketing teams, things like that, to be able to control the A-B testing, be able to control the landing pages, be able to control how design works. But traditionally, when you want someone doing that, then you have to tap on the developer's shoulder saying like, hey, we want to redo this landing page. We want to have this content. We want to do something like this. And so that's where kind of builder steps in is like the developer can still kind of create the ability for designers to get what they want with like, I want to create a new landing page without having to talk with any of the developers. And so... It's pretty much kind of a one-time developer sets it up, integrates it into their Next.js site, their Gatsby, Angular, whatever their site they're using, it's able to integrate Builder. And then from that point forward, anyone else can go in, you know, and their organization can go in and then create all these different landing pages, A-B testing, how they want without having to tap on the developer's shoulder every single time. And the other thing I should hit that's a big difference is that it's not just like a drag and drop interface builder. Like if there's actual custom components, so let's say I make a really cool React widget that when I click add to cart, does all sorts of magic, goes back to my backend servers. And so that's all still possible. So like you can still create extremely custom components and then register them inside of Builder.io. And then who's ever designing the page, they can drag in these custom components. So it's not just like only can drag in buttons and add a paragraph tag, but it really is integrate into your existing website. And so it's not like you need to retool the entire site, but you can just add the ability to your existing, you know, Node.js site to have these features. Is that like serve as a content management system or can you use it with an existing 
content management system? Yes. And so we do partner with Intentful, but I actually don't know too much of the specifics around that. But yeah, so the idea is it really can be like your content management system to build out however you want those landing pages or even just a section of the page. And so, you know, a lot of the other, you know, CMS, things like that, they give you, let's say we have a header, like this is a header word. And as a developer, it's like, well, let's put the header right here. This is where I'm going to place it. And so then traditionally someone can go in and it's like, well, I want this to have a different text or I want to change this text. But eventually they want the header to look over here and have a different font size and look different. And so that's where the challenge is, is like, you know, Builder doesn't handle just, you know, like these are the words that go in this one location, but rather like you have control of either this section or this entire mm. page. And that's up to how you integrate it into your own website, not just how mm. you are giving the, the restrictions that you have. Hmm. Interesting. So what would be the steps to add it to, for example, a React project? Yeah. So let's say you're using Next.js or React and you already have a huge e-commerce site. It's got 10,000 different pages. One thing you can do is have, you know, kind of at your 404 page, something that's like, I don't know any of these routes. Like all these routes don't exist in my existing React app. So then let's fall back to this route. And then that thing, that route would go then to Builder of like, what's the content for this? And it would actually build out, you know, an actual React code, you know, so React components, real quick plug is that it uses mitosis under the hood, which is another one of our projects. And that uses, you know, it's able to build the actual components for that framework. And so as designers are building their components or what that page looks like, it's able to translate that into the code that works for your framework using our SDKs. And so if you had a React site, all that code that was being built in the DragonJap interface builder, that will get translated into React code so that it runs naturally onto your stack. Same thing would go if you're using Vue or Angular. Uh, yeah, I think Svelte and Salad, so all of them. And so kind of what Builder creates is this universal component using mitosis, and then we're able to generate, move that component or morph that component into whatever stack you're using. And so that kind of a, really makes it ideal for especially larger teams that have many different websites, many different stacks, you know, different versions of the stack and things like that. With the plethora of tools that are out there and the intricate details of how they differ and what their goals are, I feel like it's also become more and more important to understand the different pieces of projects. Okay, and I'm struggling a little bit to kind of wrap my head. I mean, we've been through a few different tools, so it's kind of understandable, but this one I'm still trying to kind of figure out in my head. But I think that goes back to, again, like to understand what you get out of certain tools, you kind of have to understand what the different pieces are, what you may be missing and really understand the problems that everything solves for you. Yeah. And I think the, the biggest difference is we're not telling you that this entire domain needs to fall underneath the builder's control. It's rather like either this whole page is under the control or this certain div you know, it's entirely up to your site and your design. And so like, you don't even have to, you know, upgrade different versions of Gatsby or it's whatever you're using is going to continue to work, but rather your developer controls what sections of your entire website or page, however it goes, is what you have control of. And then from that point forward, the designers, marketers, developers, anyone can go in and they can change around that content. It's like, I have a project right now where everything's being run through Sanity and it's a Next.js project but I'm having to hack together stuff in order for them to be able to build these custom landing pages without having to go through me. And it seems like this is the perfect solution for that. 
because as you said, it doesn't negate their tools that we've already set up, but we can build on top of it and give them control of the pages that they need. And that's fantastic. Yeah. And I think it's the best of both worlds where, you know, designers, marketers, they want to go in and change it that moment, you know, Mm -hmm. and developers want to work on components and work on different things. And so this is able to allow the developer to integrate it into the site the way that they wanted it to, but then, Mm -hmm. you know, hand the keys to who's ever working on the landing pages or the different content to go crazy and revert and change and then comment of how things are working. And so they have a lot more tools and this is fantastic. So is builder kind of like the parent umbrella for these projects there's like builder itself and there's party time and quick are kind of under the builder umbrella yeah and so they kind of spawn from wanting to make our tooling faster mm-hmm. and even eventually customers products faster so again like it really doesn't matter how the stuff is at the lowest level how it operates but we can have our tooling a lot lot faster so i think traditionally people think of dragging up interface builders as slow and bloated but this is, we don't have that same issue because we're kind of using your existing stack, but then your existing stack might be kind of slow. So, I mean, one thing that comes up every once in a while is like, we used Builder, but now our site is still the same speed. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you still kind of have the other issues of web mm-hmm. development. It wasn't Builder that, you know, it doesn't match make it faster. You're still using a certain framework that has certain issues. Mm-hmm. And so Quick is kind of that experiment of just like, well, what if we could actually make the customer's websites a lot faster by using these new techniques? And so that's kind of where it comes from. And then Really, Party Town comes from like, you know, a lot of people's experience of just like, I spent, you know, weeks making my Lighthouse score 100 out of 100. And then the moment it went into production and they added all the analytics, I'm now at 19, right? You know, so that's a very common thing. And so <laughs> it's out of your control at a certain point. And so that's where Party Town is just like, even if we make quick the fastest thing possible, you're still going to start adding analytics to it. You're going to go back to a slow score again. So that was kind of the other half that why we created Party Town. I think that's always kind of, the best inspiration is like needing something for yourself, optimizing that while recognizing other people need and could use this as well. And then putting that out there in the format that makes it consumable. Yeah. Yeah. No, it certainly comes from a need and a lot of our experience and like feedback. So it's been a lot of fun, like, cause it really is kind of a, well, when I say a new concept, actually, when you think of something like Gmail and how Gmail works, if you ever look at the elements inside of that, it, there's a JS action, things like that. Mm. It really is based off of kind of that concept where um, you don't need to download the entire world for your app to work. You don't need to, you know, hydrate the entire DOM for things to continue to work. Whereas Gmail is kind of like, as you use them, let's kick them in. So it really is model off that concept that's been working great for, I don't know, 15 years now inside of Google. But we're trying to apply that with a good developer experience, you know, something that you're familiar with React, really just npm install, npm start, that it just has those same capabilities of what, you know, how Gmail works, but on your own computer. Yeah, love it. As a closing thought, I'll put you on the spot just slightly, but all this goes back to, again, kind of that creator mentality. Amy and I talk about being content creators, and this is slightly different, but similar, but different in the sense that it's like focused on technical creation and enablement of other developers. Do you have any advice for people that they like look at this and like, okay, maybe I'm interested in creating tools that other developers can use any advice on getting started in that area or like doing that well, like empathy for developers? I think empathy for sure. Cause while I work on a lot of this stuff, I get just as frustrated (laughs) as anybody else trying to learn something new. Like I think about when I, you know, try to use Dino for the first time or actually when I used a Mac for the first time, 
and installed Python. And I had knew nothing about Python. I didn't know how the Mac works. I remember being so frustrated of like, how do I even do anything? You know, and so like even NPM, I remember when that was first used and seeing the package JSON, it's like, what the heck is a package JSON, right? And so like, I think it gets lost in us quickly as you get familiar with web development of like how hard it is to get up to speed. And so empathy for sure. And then like seeing the challenge in a certain area, like this is very difficult to do. How can we make this easier? I think that's where Ionic came from. It is very, very difficult to have a fast, smooth running application on a very low end Android device, especially 10 years ago. And so to try to keep that smooth was, I think, the fun challenge that we had, you know, and I think that it proved itself to work pretty well. And kind of the same thing with Quick right now and even Partytown. You know, Partytown, it's a well-known fact that you can't access the DOM synchronously inside of WebWorker. And I think that, you know, Partytown has kind of shown that it is possible and it actually works quite well. And so I think that was a fun challenge to try to work on. And then Quick is the same thing of just like, you need to have one entry point. Everything needs to be bundled together. And if you want to make it fast, you need to learn how to pick it apart. And it's like, well, what if we did kind of the same concept of what Gmail does? where we can have many different little bundles and then optimize in the opposite direction. So I think it's the empathy for learning something new, but then also questioning like the status quo of like, how can we make something a little bit faster, a little bit better? So that's the fun part, I think, with software development. And I guess I've just been fortunate enough to land in these roles to be able to do that. Yeah, it seems like you've been in a pretty good spot for that. And I think that's perfect advice. That's stuff that Amy and I have talked about from a content creation perspective as well. So for sure. I think we're going to wrap up. Adam, thanks a ton for joining us yeah, and thanks. I think blowing each of our minds at different points throughout <laughs> the talk um, and kind of, I don't know, getting getting excited about the opportunities. Like you just think there's already so many things. How much better can we get? And I love seeing people continue to push the envelope in several different facets of web development specifically. I'm like, no, we can still do much better. So thank you for joining us for that. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. And sharing some of the magic behind <laughs> Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah. In the next episode, we are going to talk to AJC. Let me make sure I get this right. Anthony Joseph Campolo. <laughs> and we're going to talk about leveraging blockchain infrastructure for decentralized Web3 applications. A bunch of buzzwords that Amy and I are not that familiar with. So this will be another good learning opportunity for Nailed us it. next week. Yeah, so we're looking forward to that. On the next live episode of Compressed FM, if you're listening to this as a podcast and you enjoyed it, make sure to leave us a rating and review and help other people find the podcast as well. In the meantime, that's all we got.